May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. I saw something that I've never taken note of before this morning, uh, rest, and I brought it with me into the pulpit. It was resting in the preacher's desk. It appears to be an ordinary pencil with the brand on one side, Dixon, but if you flip it over, it says, stolen from the Church of the Advent. <laughs> that is one pencil with great power of condemnation depending on where you are. I say that because I want to preface the message today uh, by offering a word of not condemnation but encouragement, that what I have to offer today is not intended to uh, incite guilt. We are guilty of many things, and Hence, we have our confession of sin every week. Now, that's a fact, but I don't want to stir that up and then rely on that as a source of power for change. I'm pretty much of the mind and clearly convinced that guilt can only go so far, but it really doesn't have the power that's needed to stir you to act differently. So the message today, I hope, is heard as encouragement. About 15 years ago, while I was finishing up uh, graduate studies, I spent a lot of time in uh, a computer lab, or computer labs around the campus. I'm not even sure that these exist anymore. I've been, I think they, I think they may, but everyone has their own devices these days. Uh, but back then, you had to go to the computer lab because not everyone had a laptop. And I, was, I remember distinctly on one occasion being in this computer lab, and it was quiet, and the keyboards were tapping away, and kids were coughing, as college kids do. And uh, the door opened, and in walked a young man, a few years older than myself, uh, standing fairly tall in stature, well-dressed, well-put-together, looked like a sensible fellow, and he was. And he didn't take a seat, he just sort of stood there. And behind him, the door closed and clicked. And nobody really paid attention until he got everyone's attention with an announcement. Now, I don't remember the exact words he used, but he said something along the lines of, in the most respectful, discreet, kind way, excuse me, I don't want to interrupt you too much, but I just want to make a brief announcement. I'm a Christian. <laughs> Immediately, the atmosphere changed. That means I follow Christ, Jesus. He has made a big difference in my life, and I take opportunities to share that with people, anyone who might want to talk or hear. And I'm just going to step outside this room and make myself available for about 15 minutes. If you would like to come and talk or pray together, I will be here. And then he left. And there was 
certainly some scoffing and jeering. It actually went quite well. It could have gone a lot worse. Uh, But the manner in which he did it was, as I said, very respectable. And he wasn't a John the Baptist type of fellow. He, He didn't look crazy. He's a very sensible young man. And I remember sitting there and wondering, what does he have? What does this young man possess that compels him to boldly step out in that way and put himself out there, taking all the risks that come with such a gesture? What's going on inside that young man? It happened to be in a season of my own life when I was weighing some of the basic fundamental truths of the Christian faith for myself. Yes, I had grown up in the church, but it hadn't really fallen into place. And I was sitting there at that point in time, confronted with Jesus myself in his own ways of how he was making himself known, wondering about these things, And it seemed to me like this man just did something in the nature of an apostle. It was very apostolic in nature, that kind of bold proclamation, putting himself out there on the line. It doesn't have to look like that, proclaiming Christ. But for him, God used him in that way and continued to use him, and probably still today. But I do remember being greatly affirmed, not because of anything he said, but just the fact that if this is true, this message that we believe, there's a living, breathing example of it right there. There's a man filled with the Holy Spirit, offering himself sort of recklessly. I happened to go out and speak with him for a little bit, and I was just affirmed affirmed by his example alone. Our gospel reading here in the 10th chapter of Matthew's gospel is set within the context of Jesus sending his disciples, soon to be apostles, out into the region of Judea to do precisely that, to proclaim the gospel message that the king is here and the kingdom is at hand. And essentially, all of chapter 10 is taken up with this theme. Up to this point, the king has arrived, has been ushered on the scene of human history. His ministry is active. He's been ministering. He's been perf- perf- the kingdom has been evidenced in great signs and miracles through the king himself. And now he pivots and says, now it's your turn. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves to go and proclaim and make me known. Now, in order to do that, it seems reasonable and necessary that the disciples are going to need to be prepared. And so Jesus takes the opportunity. All of chapter 10 is devoted to preparing the disciples to go out and proclaim the king and the kingdom. And we would do well to hear these words not simply for them or them alone, but to bring them up to today for us as disciples of Jesus today. 
These words are just as relevant for us as they were for them. And essentially, I think what Jesus is doing here is he is preparing them, on the one hand, by telling them what they can expect. He wants them to know what to expect when they go out and begin to proclaim. And secondly, what they're going to need, what they can expect, and what they will need. And I want to look at both of those in that order. So first of all, what can you expect going out and proclaiming Christ to your neighbor, to a stranger, to family, to anybody? What can you expect? Look what Jesus says. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not. Because I know you're thinking that. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. His words, not mine. Luke, in his gospel, adds to this, giving another angle on Jesus' same teaching, and uses the figure of fire. Luke says that Jesus said, I have not come to bring peace to the earth, but I've come to cast fire, and division will ensue. That's how Luke puts it. So whether it's swords or fire, both of those are very agitating illustrations, not very peaceful. And Jesus is not doing anything new here. He's simply drawing on Old Testament imagery and figures. When he says he came to bring a sword, he's simply fulfilling what the prophet Isaiah had said about the Messiah. When the Messiah arrives, the Lord called me from the womb, in the words of the Messiah, from the body of my mother he named me, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. And what we gather and can conclude from this is the fact that we should certainly expect a degree of disruption. When Christ is proclaimed, it causes disruption, and in many cases, this disruption will lead to opposition and result in division, which is exactly what Jesus says here. Now, what can we say about a sword? Well, essentially, swords do two things. They pierce and they divide. Pierce and divide. The author to the Hebrews in the New Testament puts it this way. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The gospel has the power to pierce us to the heart and to reach us there on that level. It also has the power to simply cut and hurt and divide. And out of self-preservation and protection, people will flee and run away. There's a long-standing principle that's very true that's worth stating. Someone wisely put it in these words, the gospel unites those who accept it and divides those who reject it. 
which is essentially what we've seen play out all through human history. Which raises the question, why? Why does it have to be this way? You know, on the one hand, we know division all too well. Uh, the list is endless on reasons why we might be divided from loved ones in our, in our own homes. Why do we need to add another reason here, Jesus? Why? I'm coming looking for healing, and this sounds like burden upon burden. I want healing and wholeness. Well, the division is the result of primarily two things, the message and the person. The message of the gospel is offensive on the one hand. A few chapters earlier, when we look at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, just going back to chapter 4, Jesus, immediately after returning from the wilderness, after having been tempted by the devil, begins his ministry. And we will remember that he began with these words, Repent, quote, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, if it weren't for that R word, if we could just excise that and say that Jesus went about saying the kingdom of heaven is here, all are welcome, that would be more readily and easily received. Some do that. All are welcome, period. But that sort of cuts off the first part, the R word, repent. Jesus says that all are welcome to come and repent. And in fact, we are all welcome to enter through these doors and repent of our sins. And we do every week. At least we say we do. It's not easy. To come to Christ involves turning to Christ. And to turn to Christ includes turning away from former beliefs and behaviors. The message of Jesus confronts us in our fallen condition or our sickness or our sinfulness before it comforts us. It is a confrontational message. And we must keep it that way. Any physician is the same. You, it's the reason why we avoid doctors. It might hurt. It might hurt to go for healing along the way. And Jesus is the great physician, and he is the one who can cut down into the disease of the heart and begin to work in ways that no one else can. The second reason why division results from the gospel is the person himself. Just the fact alone of who Jesus is. If it was easy to re receive Jesus on his own terms of who he claimed to be, he would never have been crucified. But he was crucified, hung on a cross because of who he said he was. He went around proclaiming, I am the Son of God. I am your maker, and there is no other. And that is a deeply offensive message, especially if you are of the mind to have a pantheon of options by way to make your way to God. Jesus doesn't leave that option open. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, only me. The early Christians and the early church could have avoided a great deal of persecution if they had been willing to substitute the article A for the. If they had gone around the Roman Empire saying, we believe that Jesus is a God or like a God, it would have been very different from saying Jesus is the God. Many of them might have spared their lives here. Of course, as Jesus alludes to later, they would have lost their lives later. So we may be less violent in some ways as a culture, but I guarantee you, if you go out in any overt manner proclaiming Christ, you will face no less resistance today to the message of the gospel. And some of you know this by way of experience firsthand, and ever since that bad experience, you vowed to never do it again. What were you expecting? Where did you get that expectation from? Look what Jesus says. It will not be easy. It will be very difficult. People do not want to be challenged in their beliefs or behaviors. They want to be affirmed. And especially in our cultural moment, people are looking for affirmation and not a message of repentance. So that's what you can expect. What do you need? If you're really going to go out and do this and attempt it, and that's between you and God and your prayer life to say what that will look like, what are you going to need to actually do it and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? I think it comes down to this. You're going to need courage. And the reason I say that is because if you go back in the history of God's people, anytime God calls someone into some special role of ministry, from Moses to Joshua to Ezekiel, David, Jeremiah, all the prophets, he always has to take the time to encourage them because they're fear-filled. They're afraid of what God is calling them to do. Moses said, God, are you sure I'm the one to go and lead this people out of Israel? They're not going to listen to me. Of course they're not. But I'm going to be with you. Have courage. Do not be afraid. I am with you. So we need courage first and foremost, which leads us to consider courage to do what? And there are essentially four things that I'll offer briefly. On the one hand, you're going to need courage to truly love people. It takes courage to truly love someone because you may have to confront them with a hard and difficult conversation. It may not always be easy. Jesus said, For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. People will divide over Christ and his message, and it will take courage to stand up against it. Paul says that the message of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, and it's not just the message, it's the messenger who will be deemed foolish. 
you go out bearing Christ's message, and you can expect that. Secondly, it will require courage to love Jesus, and not just to love Jesus, but to love him first and foremost above anything and everything else. Look what Jesus says. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There are many competing loves in our lives. We may be tempted to love our profession over Christ, or first, that that's our predominant focus is what we do. We may be tempted to love our possessions, the things that give us comforts and security. We may be tempted to love certain people and relations over Christ. And we regard them first, before Christ's words. Jesus said, whoever loves me will keep my word. And so when Jesus sends his disciples out, those who love him will do what he says. Or else, you simply won't. You'll come up with all reasons not to. We've bought an adage hook, line, and sinker that I think should have a stake put into it and put into the ground. And it goes like this. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. You can be just step back and be thankful for a moment that Jesus didn't practice that, nor did the apostles practice that, nor did the people in your life who have influenced you in speaking the gospel to you practice that. I get the point. We don't want to be hypocrites. But the message of the gospel is a message. Words of healing and hope and love. Words to rest in. Words. Thirdly, you're going to need courage to deny yourself. Let me just emphasize that word, self. Jesus says, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Now note, I do not say that you're going to need courage for self-denial. Like when we give up certain things or pleasantries in life, trying to lead a holier life. No, you're going to need courage to deny yourself, your own person, so that you don't put yourself before others. That's one of the hardest things to do, and it requires courage. And fourthly and lastly, you're going to need courage to have an eternal perspective. Again, look what Jesus says, whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To take your gaze off of the kingdoms of this world and place your eye and your heart, your eyes and your heart on the kingdom of heaven and the king himself is a step of faith. And faith takes courage because you haven't fully received what you hope for. It's only been promised. And it's going to require courage for you to continually keep that eternal perspective. 
that there is an eternal inheritance for you. Now, this message would be empty and powerless if I left you with the task of just drum up the courage somehow on your own. The fact of the matter is, Jesus gives us everything we need. Look at it this way. You want to love people like Jesus loved people? Well, he didn't just tell you to go love people. He did it. He loved people, truly, in ways that he calls you to love. So he is the pattern. He is the example. This is not an abstract teaching. You want to love Jesus first? Consider the fact that Jesus treated you first and foremost. When he hung on the cross, you were in his mind. He died for you. Who else or what else has done that? No one. No one else has put you that, in that position of priority except Jesus. Thirdly, You want to have courage to deny yourself? What did Jesus deny in hanging on the cross? Everything. His glory. His position on the throne. He emptied himself. He counted it as nothing hanging there for you. There's power in that. Because he emptied himself, you then can turn and empty yourself. And fourthly, Jesus has prepared a kingdom. He said, I go to my Father's house in which there are many rooms, and when I go, I will prepare a place for you. He has an eternal place prepared for you. So you're not hoping against the wind. It's there. You just have to keep that in focus. So how are we going to do it? Well, you can do it. You can do it because Jesus has given you everything you need. The question is, will you do it? Will you have this courage to proclaim Christ? And to that, I would finish by saying our response can and should be as we've said in the renewal of our baptismal vows time and time again, I will with God's help. Amen.